I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick, and we're back with part four. And uh, I would say probably it's got to be the final part right now, at least (laughs) the final part for now, of our series on mud. Uh, so in previous episodes in the series, uh, which if you haven't listened to them, you should go back and check those out first. But we talked about uh, the history of mud on Earth. It's a more surprising and dynamic story than you might imagine. That was uh, in part one. Uh, we talked a bit about what defines mud. You know, it tends to be, uh, of course, wet soil of a smaller particle size that gives it that sticky consistency. Uh, we talked in part two about animal behavior in mud, uh, such as pig wallowing, Arnold Schwarzenegger wallowing, uh, mud, uh, what do they call it? Mud skippers, the, the fish mm-hmm. that... Uh, have these interesting mud habitat behaviors and uh, other things like that. In the episode just before this one, we talked a lot about mud bricks, the history of mud in human construction. And today we're back to sort of round things out with a grab bag of uh, different little topics that didn't make it anywhere else. That's right. And yeah, this this will I think this will be the the capstone for this series. But mud does open up the possibility for some standalone episodes later on, I think there's a it, it ends up touching on so many different aspects of the world and and um, our, our habitats and um, and also human creation. So uh, who knows? There may be more mud in the future, but this is going to be the like the this is the bedrock mud. This is the initial foundation of mud bricks upon we, on which we might build future episodes. That's right. That's right. Uh, So to kick things off today, I wanted to start by thinking about a principle that maybe should be used in the natural sciences. We'll see. And it's, it's basically the heavy metal principle of nature, which states that for every phenomenon in nature, there's a good chance there is a heavy metal version of that phenomenon. If you start with the kind of like a easy listening or, or jazz or country of your classic mud puddle, the heavy metal version, I think, is the mud pot. Uh, so 
you think of a normal mud puddle, they're usually a depression in the ground where surface water collects after rain, soaks through the soil, especially if the soil particle particles are small, creates an area of plastic or even fully liquid mud. And if water stops flowing into the puddle from above, it can dry up. But now imagine a mud puddle with a thick liquid consistency, sort of like paint, but boiling, bubbling like a big pot of stew, forming opaque bubbles of gas that uh, the gas is clearly trapped in those clay particles rising up from below. And you can see them form into spheres on the surface sometimes and they'll like, stay there for a moment before they finally burst. And uh, depending on the consistency of the mud might splatter all over the place when they do burst, maybe even throwing clumps of mud up into the air such that it piles around this puddle of mud, forming mounds or, or or even a cone that the mud puddle rises from, or a weird kind of collar of mud splatter all around. This is a mud pot, and it's also, uh, it could develop into uh, one example of a term. There's a term called mud volcano that actually seems to be used to refer to a multiple very different things. But one thing that gets called a mud volcano is the kind of mound that can build up from uh, the, the life cycle of a mud pot. Quick Weird House Cinema trivia here for you, Joe. Can you name two movies that we've covered that feature boiling mud or the appearance of boiling mud, no matter how they actually created it via actual footage or some other kind of technique? Oh, wow. You are really stumping me. I seem to recall there's some boiling mud in Legend. The, isn't that where Meg Mucklebones lives? But I don't think we actually watched Legend for Weird House, did we? No, no, not, not as of this recording. Um, oh, wait a minute. Did we do Labyrinth? No, we didn't do Labyrinth. But Labyrinth has boiling mud, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, or something that looks like it. No, yeah. the, the two movies that I believe we've watched that have boiling mud or the effect of boiling mud, Planet of the Vampires and oh. 1978's Beauty and the Beast. You're exactly right. Both of those just escaped my memory. But uh, yeah, two, two masterpieces in their own right came into my head as you were describing it because it is a very like otherworldly feeling thing though even though it is very much of this world mm -hmm. uh, it kind of lends itself to alien environments or environments like in beauty and the beast which are supposed to be kind of like on the edge of the civilized world sort of bordering on the supernatural yeah yeah in the beauty and the beast there's like boiling mud or at least bubbling mud even within the grounds of the castle i think isn't there i think so mm -hmm. yeah there's like a courtyard that has mud pots within it uh and that that seems yeah at the edge of fantasy but to look at a mud pot and understand what's going on here uh, i think we should start with the concept of a hot spring so hot springs form when uh, water heated by geothermal energy deep underground rises to the surface and forms a pool, or when water that collects at the surface uh, due to you know regular runoff and surface features is heated by uh, steam or heat from below. And the surface water can be anywhere between you know, pleasantly warm bathtub temperature and lethal boiling. So you do not ever want to jump into a hot spring unless it's one that is like very well known in advance to be a consistent safe temperature. If in doubt, stay away. Uh, I've read something like 20 people are known to have died from jumping into or falling into hot springs at Yellowstone National Park in the United States alone. Yeah, I remember reading about some of this when we were uh, doing some episodes on springs and uh, holy waters uh, associated with springs. Yeah, uh, and sometimes it, it can be deceiving. Like, 
there are uh, tragic cases of people just trying to like get close to see what the temperature is like and then falling in and dying. There was a case like this I was reading about from the year 2016 uh, where, uh, let's see, well, so I was reading an article about it from the local news station KULR8 in Billings. Uh, I guess that'd be Billings, Montana, near Yellowstone. And uh, so the headline was, Man Killed in Yellowstone Hot Spring Allegedly Trying to, quote, Hot Pot. I guess hot potting uh, is uh, like you know, jumping into a hot spring to hang out in it. Uh, But to read from the article, it says, uh, the man who died in a Yellowstone hot spring last summer was apparently looking for a place to hot pot in the park. Yellowstone officials recently released the final report on the incident. Following a Freedom of Information Act request, the victim's sister recorded the incident on her cell phone. The accident happened in Norris Geyser Basin on the afternoon of June 7th. Deputy Chief Ranger Laurent Vares says it is a very dangerous area with boiling acidic waters. Uh, So the article tells the story of how the man and his sister went off the approved path and they were checking out uh, different like hot springs or or maybe more mud pot type areas to see what the temperature was. And unfortunately, the man, while trying to get close to check the temperature, slipped and fell in. And uh, the, the article says, quote, Search and rescue rangers who arrived later did find the victim's body in the pool, along with his wallet and flip-flops, but a lightning storm stopped the recovery efforts. The next day, workers could not find any remains. Varus says the water was churning and acidic. He remarked, quote, in a very short order, there was a significant amount of dissolving. Uh, so the the apparently uh, boiling and acidic conditions in the water uh, essentially disintegrated the the, the victim's remains. Oh wow! So it is no joke. Do not do not mess around with like. Oh, maybe I'll I'll go check out this hot spring and see if I should get in. Yeah, listen to your park rangers obey signage. But so okay, so that's hot springs. Uh, water water that pools on the surface that is either connected to a hydrothermal system that heats it or is heated by uh, by heat coming off of a hydrothermal system below in the ground. Um. So also in this family of surface outlets for geothermal energy are fumaroles, which are holes in the earth where steam rising from geothermally heated water escapes. A mud pot is, in a way, still a type of mud puddle. Mud pots are pools where water collects and mixes with clay particles, forming a thick liquid mud, usually gray or cream colored, sometimes black. Uh, But there are other colors possible, too. This mud puddle is heated by geothermal activity from below, or or at least is permeated by gas that's released from below. And mud pots often release hydrogen sulfide gas, which smells like rotten eggs. And while people who see these things often describe them as marvelous, one of the most amazing things they've seen in nature, if not exactly beautiful, an element of the mud pot encounter described at least as often is the dank, putrid smell, which is in the air before you can even see the thing. You might, maybe you hear it, but you smell it. Now, an interesting thing is I wonder if this reflects a development in the understanding of mud pots, but I've read different accounts of the most common ways that mud pots are formed. So I want to start with an older account from a reputable source, but an older one. Um, And this is from a a textbook from the 1920s by the American geologist Louis V. Pearson uh, that essentially describes a mud pot as like a hot spring, but with limited water supply. And Pearson says it goes like this. If there is basically a net positive flow of water into a hot spring, 
meaning that more water is flowing into the hot spring, either from below or from above or the combination of both, then the rate of evaporation of that water, this will lead to overflow from the spring. And, you know, the water will overflow the basin of the pool and drain away. And in fact, if you look up pictures of hot springs, you can often see rocks nearby stained where the the runoff from the spring is going. It'll maybe carry uh, colorful extremophile microbes with it. So you'll see almost kind of like a little red river running off the side of it. And so in these cases, if the flow of water into the pool is positive, the water stays relatively clear, uh, relatively limpid in Pearson's words, often a deep blue or green color, though it can appear different colors like red or yellow, again, due to extremophiles present. Now, of course, presumably if the net flow of water into the pool is strongly negative, the pool will just dry up. But, Pearson says, if the rate of evaporation is roughly equal to the rate of inflow of water into the pool, the hot spring neither dries up nor overflows. Then the acidic water sitting in the pool dissolves the surrounding rock into clay, which then mixes with the water and forms mud, and you are left with a pool of hot, bubbling mud, which is sometimes described as boiling because of the way that it bubbles. It certainly can look like it is boiling, but technically I've read that Uh, these mud pots have variable temperature. They are sometimes less hot than the boiling point of water, which, of course, at one atmosphere of pressure is uh, 100 degrees C or 212 Fahrenheit. In some cases, the, the mud pot is actually much cooler than that, but the mud is still bubbling because of hot gases from below. So hot gases from in the earth are still rising up through it. In that case, it's not actually the mud boiling. It's just it's being permeated by by gas that's trying to rise. Uh, Pearson says that the mud in these pots can be different colors. It can be white, yellow, red, purple, or black. Uh, This is often due to the presence of oxides of iron or manganese. Uh, I think manganese oxides tend to be more black. Of course, iron oxide tends to be more red. And for this reason, of all these different colors, These mud pots are sometimes called paint pots. They can look like a bubbling pool of paint of different colors mixed together. Now, Pearson says that as more clay is dissolved into the water, the mud becomes thicker, of course. So you're getting more soil to the same, uh, roughly the same amount of water. So as as you mix in more sediment, it uh, becomes a thicker consistency. And this makes the ebullition, meaning the bubbling, less regular. So imagine the way that like a soup in a pot on the stove, as it becomes thicker, the bubbling becomes less regular and more kind of random and chaotic and violent. Robert, do you know what I'm talking about from cooking experiences? Yes. Yeah. It can kind of even like shake the pot a little bit, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this is my experience in the kitchen. Like, you boil something with basically a watery consistency or broth-like consistency. The bubbles will be pretty even. There'll be a steady rate, you know, they'll pop Mm -hmm. evenly uh, as long as the heat is consistently applied. But if you were talking about like a very thick stew, you can sometimes get much less predictable and more explosive bubbles. So it might not bubble at all for a bit and then suddenly a huge bubble pops and it splatters all over the stovetop. Yeah, yeah. I was cooking one of these just last night. (laughs) 
Well, apparently a similar thing happens as the mud in a mud pot thickens. Uh, With thick mud, steam builds up higher pressure before rising to the top and popping, which means it can happen, in Pearson's words, quote, spasmodically and with some violence, the mud being thrown into the air and about the vent, where it collects inconsiderable masses. And this is one version of the concept of the mud volcano, because... Uh, The mud pot that bubbles this way and kind of builds up mud around it can form a cone uh, that looks like a like a volcano mountain. It looks like a a cone volcano or can kind of form a caldera around itself made out of ejected mud. Now, often this mud erodes very easily. So this this building process can be kind of cyclical. Uh, But uh, yeah, it can build up a little sort of mini volcano made out of mud and just kind of keep popping and spewing onto itself. Pearson says that this usually marks the end of the period of activity for a hot spring. Sort of as the activity of a hot spring is dying away, it's more likely to go through a mud pot and a volcano period. Now, I mentioned I came across some different accounts of what is exactly going on in a mud pot. Uh, That was the older account. There, uh, A lot of the more recent sources I was looking at describe the source of the water uh, going into the mud pot as uh, placing more emphasis on that being surface water. So, for example, the National Park Service has some uh, materials about what's going on with the mud pots at Yellowstone. And these sources claim that it essentially acts more like a double boiler. So if you, again, with kitchen analogies, I guess that's where we have a lot of our experience with boiling liquids. A double boiler, if, you, if you've never used this, Rob, it's like uh, you put like a glass bowl on top of a pot that has a little bit of water boiling in it. And the steam from the boiling water rises and it gently heats the bowl from below, as opposed to just, uh, you know, putting whatever you have in the bowl in the pot directly and having hot metal applied to it. Hmm, I don't think I've ever done this myself. Interesting. Sometimes it's used usually when you need to heat something very gently, like if you're uh, trying to heat something that could easily overheat and would be ruined by doing so. Like if you are making, uh, it's used sometimes in baking when you need to melt chocolate to a particular temperature to get the end consistency you want. Or Mm. if you're making like a hollandaise sauce because, you know, you, you heat a hollandaise sauce too much and you end up with scrambled eggs. Okay. All right. But so anyway, it's just like letting the steam from below do the heating of the food as opposed to letting uh, applying direct heat from the heating element uh, through the metal to the food. And uh, the, the source from the National Park Service claims that in the case of these mud pots, what's usually happening is that water from the surface collects in a basin or a depression that is not actually connected to the water flow from below, from the hydrothermal systems in the ground. Instead, the bottom of the basin or the depression is usually considered impermeable because of uh, lining with fine particles of clay. So that's sort of your bowl, the bottom of the double boiler. And the hydrothermal system below releases steam and usually some hydrogen sulfide gas, which rises through the bottom layers of clay and causes the mud puddle to both heat up and bubble as the gas rises to the top. And then you have, uh, again, extremophile organisms, microorganisms in these pools that 
can use the hydrogen sulfide gas to make energy, and in the process, they create sulfuric acid, which turns the mud pool extremely acidic, and then it helps dissolve more rock in the surrounding uh, basin and turns that into clay, and so the mud just like, you know, you get continuous supply of new clay particles from that dissolution, and it gets thicker and thicker. Uh, and this source also says that mud pots can be affected by the season, so like rain and melting snow can make the mud in the pots cooler and thinner, and then hot, dry weather in the summer can cause them to thicken or even dry up completely. Which means that these are ultimately somewhat transient and dynamic features, like a, a mud pot or a mud volcano of this variety might only be active for a few months. It can also be active much, much longer, but it might just be a, a very brief, uh, shortly-lived thing before maybe it just transforms into a kind of fixed fumarole where steam is coming out of a hole in the ground. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I've never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. 
I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, there is another use of the term mud volcano that can refer to a a different geological process that can, in some cases, be extremely explosive and large in scale and violent. Uh, I was reading about this in an article from December 2020 by a UT Austin geologist named Michael R. Hudick uh, that is describing, like, it, it cites a particular example of a mud volcano that occurred in Indonesia in 2006 in the uh, Sidoarjo Regency that is known sometimes as the Lumpur Sidoarjo. Lumpur is the word for mud. And there was this massive sudden eruption. There was like steam releasing from a vent in the ground and rumbling. And then it started just exploding with these huge amounts of mud that ended up uh, completely engulfing villages in the surrounding area. It was like many acres and people had to be uh, evacuated in order to to get out of harm's way. These villages were completely swallowed up in mud. Uh, there were like these farming villages in the area. And, uh, and so this is not like a little mound of mud ejected by a puddle. This was like a landscape destroying violent ejection of mud. And uh, it seems like in many of these cases, where there is this uh, large explosive kind of mud eruption, one thing that might be going on is the interaction with hydrocarbon gases. So, for example, methane, and of course methane uh, being very flammable, can make these eruptions actually flaming eruptions, where like when the hot methane comes into the atmosphere, it can ignite. The cause of this particular mud volcano eruption in 2006 is uh, apparently controversial. It seems like a lot of uh, people have attributed it to uh, drilling of a natural gas well in the area by a by an oil and gas company. Of course, the oil and gas company claims, no, it wasn't us. It was a naturally occurring event. But it did seem to be significant hydrocarbon gas involved in, in this kind of eruption. Uh, and uh, th- this kind of thing is scary because it's, it's hard to imagine. I mean, I guess we are familiar with the concept of like an igneous volcanic eruption you know, where it's like a, a rock volcano erupting and it's releasing all of this gas and, and rock and, uh, and molten rock and pyroclastic flow and all these things. Uh, and so I, I guess we, we are already familiar with the concept of large destructive volcanoes, but the idea that it could just like flood a landscape with mud is, is another stranger and, and uh, differently frightening version of, of that kind of image. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to have vast quantities of mud where you know mud will be seasonally or otherwise. It's another thing for mud to just suddenly appear where it's not expected. And this seems to be like one of the more exaggerated cases of it, you know, where it's vast quantities of mud just emerging and taking over people's homes and so forth. Yeah. Now, uh, on the subject of mud volcanoes, I have also been reading a little bit about this idea of mud volcanoes on Mars. I don't know if you came across any of this. Um, I was looking at a paper from 2020 uh, quoting Peter Brose, uh, a professor of geophysics of the Czech Academy of Sciences. And uh, basically, uh, he proposed that uh, mud from mud volcanoes may have flowed in Mars past, and therefore some of the things we see in visuals from Mars that looks like it could be the result of lava flows could perhaps be the result 
of mud flows in the past. So uh, he and his team conducted experiments to see how this would work and found that while the mud eventually would freeze under those chilly Martian conditions, there would be a little time for it to flow, freezing and crusting over at the surface initially, enabling it to move a bit before the, the freeze firmly took hold. Uh, because I guess that, you know, it's one of the things about thinking about mud elsewhere in the universe. Mm-hmm. We have plenty of sci-fi visions of muddy planets, but for mud to be there, you need some sort of moisture to be there as well. Yeah. But we, we do, I think, love the idea of mud planets. You know, take any, especially any kind of like exotic uh, terrestrial environment, and somebody somewhere has turned a whole planet into that. You know, yeah, so you have jungle planets, you have desert planets like Arrakis. Um, mm-hmm. If you look at Star Wars, you have planets like Dagobah, just a swamp world. Uh, not only does it have a lot of mud, like the mud and the muck will just swallow up whole spaceships. That's true, though. You know, it's interesting. They never say in the Star Wars movies that the entire planet Dagobah is a swamp, but you just assume that's the case. Yeah, <laughs> I think I've seen some maps. Uh, uh, and these are, you know, like, you know, artistic interpretations that kind of run with that. And it's like, oh, yeah, whole planet just swamps. Um, and that raises a lot of questions like what how would that work? How would mm-hmm. the, the entire planet be a swamp? Uh, does that mean it doesn't have oceans? It just has swamp. Um, I don't know. Uh, I should look into this and see. I'm sure some people have written some papers about this sort of thing. Yeah, I wonder if, like, could you have a swamp if you didn't have other types of uh, regions to support the, uh, like, the geological and atmospheric conditions that would create a swamp? Yeah. Now, I'll come back to to Star Wars in just a second, but I want to hit another couple of sort of cosmic uh, mud examples. Uh, One concerns SMAP, S-M-A-P, which... (laughs) is also a Japanese boy band, apparently. This, this became obvious uh, when I was researching this. But uh, in this case, it stands for Soil Moisture Active Passive. Hmm. That's uh, NASA's uh, environmental monitoring satellite launched in 2015 and still active as of this recording. I think it's supposed to be active through at least the end of 2023. Um, but it can measure land surface soil moisture up to a certain depth. Uh, so it's an eye in the sky, essentially, on mud. And uh, the the data that it collects is useful because it spills over into better understandings of the carbon cycle, weather and climate models, drought monitoring, and so much more. Hmm. But of course, that's concerning Earth. We know there's mud on Earth. Uh, this is another idea I ran across was the idea that you, at one point anyway, had just cosmic mud balls flying around through space. <laughs> okay, so if you imagine um, a like a comet as a formation of ice and dust that's uh, flying around in, in space. Of course, all the ice is frozen. But like, what if a comet was wet? Yeah, so I actually found some, um, uh, some discussion of this in a 2017 article for New Scientist by Sam Wong. In uh, this, it doesn't concern uh, comets, but it concerns asteroids, particularly early asteroids or carbonaceous asteroids that may have delivered water and organic molecules to Earth. And apparently it can be helpful to model them as just big old mud balls. Hmm. So the idea here is that ice, dust, and chondrules come together, and the pressure has not yet compacted it all into rock right away. Mm -hmm. Uh, It will in time, but at this point early on, it hasn't all been compacted into rock. And the ice will end up melting due to decaying radioactive atoms in the dust and gas, resulting in a quote-unquote sludgy mud. Wow. And this would eventually become rock again, but for a time, 
they would be muddy asteroids, according to the modeling by Philip Bland at Curtin University in Perth, Australia, and his collaborator, Brian Travis, at the Planetary Science Institute in Tucson, Arizona. That is interesting. Okay, so they got a uh, uh, they've got a pretty strong internal heat source because they've got all these young radioactive atoms in them that are still decaying at a at a pretty rapid rate. So they're keeping the the ice content uh, like melted and moist, and then of course they've got all like the dust and and rock soil content in them. And yeah, wow, just like big balls of mud flying through space. Yeah, yeah. So I, I before I ran across this, I didn't even think this was possible. You know, you think of mud as being something you're going to encounter, particularly on an Earth-like world. Mm-hmm. Now, coming back to Earth-like worlds and mud, another Star Wars planet of note, uh, especially if you've seen the movie Solo, which came out several years back, uh, there's a planet called Mimban. And in that movie, we see Imperial mud troopers or swamp troopers, as they're uh, sometimes called engaged in some sort of drawn-out battle on this world. And Joe, uh, in case you haven't seen this, I included uh, an image here of what mud troopers look like as compared to just normal Imperial stormtroopers. Looks like a dirty job. Looks like they, uh, this may be like the last thing that like all the other troopers try to sign up for a different detail. And, yeah. uh, you know, the, the last picks for all the other ones, like, nope, you cannot go to Hoth and be a snow trooper. You got to be yeah. a mud trooper. Yeah. And so and I think that's the way it's presented in the movie, too. Like Han Solo, a young Han Solo is a mud trooper on this awful world. And of course, they're also drawing in a lot of comparisons to um, trench warfare and and wars past and so forth, which we'll we'll get back to in a bit. But Mm. um, one of the interesting things, and of course, this is kind of across the board when you look at sci fi, sci fi often is looking backwards and taking things from the past and putting this futuristic spin on them, because I don't recall, and I could be wrong, it's been a while since I've seen Solo, but I don't think the Imperial Mud Troopers leveraged any kind of sci-fi technology to deal with the mud. It seems like they would have leaned heavily on repulsor technology to kind of float above it, or to use some sort of technology to either rapidly dry out muddy conditions, or to like flash freeze them so that you wouldn't have to get slogged down in them. It seems like that would be something to try if the imperial budget allowed for it i guess they spent that all on big walking machines that are gonna yeah uh, i guess in theory not get bogged down in the mud (laughs) off the top of my head i I don't think i can even think of another uh sci-fi vision where there's any kind of like sci-fi treatment of mud like this i could be wrong because i'm not i mean there's a lot a lot of military sci-fi out there um, so someone might have, have looked at it. Uh, I do remember a gadget in John Steakley's armor uh, that is like a people in power armor versus insect aliens on a desert world that uh, involves sand clotters and a machine that would turn the sand of the desert into solid walls of fortification. So mm-hmm. I imagine you'd want something like that, something that through sci-fi shenanigans can instantly dry out an area or make it solid uh, as opposed to... Um, you know, shifting sand, or in this case, like mud that's going to cling to you and and like suck you down into the muck. I don't know if sand is the best choice for that. Wouldn't it be better to use a co- cohesive soil with smaller particles like clay or silt? Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. Any of you out there who certainly are, are more read in military sci-fi than, than me, there might be an example of this. So write in and let us know. Now, of course, you keep saying military sci-fi in particular, and it makes sense why you would do that because of the significance of mud in in combat and warfare in human history. That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, mud, I, I've, I was thinking about this a lot, like 
Mud is not only an environmental condition that occurs naturally in the world, but it's often this condition that is at an interaction point between the natural world and human activity. Uh, you would think of muddy roads, right? We think of paths that are not well-maintained, uh, that get really muddy and sloppy in places. And, and then the, I mean, there, there are several walks that my family does uh, like this uh, in the area where, you know, we know exactly where that muddy stretch is. And there are often a lot of uh, slapdash efforts to mitigate it. You know, boards that are thrown yep, down, yep. rocks. Here's a that board. Are, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that works for a little bit, sort of. It also creates additional splash hazards and new and exciting ways to slip and fall in the mud. But... Yeah, mud is also a, a big factor in human warfare and has been for a long, long time. Um, you you pointed this out to me, and this is something that uh, has been covered in uh, in various articles over the last couple of years, but there is a, a Russian term, Rasputitsa, uh, that refers to a season or seasons of the year when unpaved roads become treacherous due to the mud created by rain and or melting snow on said roads. It's had a major impact on land wars in Russia and Eastern Europe for ages, impacting the Mongol invasion, both world wars, and also the Russo-Ukrainian war uh, that, as of this recording, is still ongoing. Uh, it's been observed that among Russia's mistakes during the 2022 invasion of Ukraine, they underestimated the muddy road season that was just kicking off at that time. Right. So this is sort of one of the factors affecting the, the seasonal planning of uh, offensives in, in conflict in Eastern Europe. Yes. Yeah. And um, on the other hand, another major area uh, for mud and war is the First World War. And uh, I mean, you can instantly picture this probably if you've seen uh, you know, images, footage and fictional recreations of of those trench warfare environments. What do you think of? You think of like blasted landscape, you think of mud, uh, you think of these just awful conditions where like the natural world is just worn away and all that remains is mud and fortifications and explosions and death and pain. Yeah, like in uh, heavily shelled or trodden over areas where uh, it seems like a lot of the plant life has been killed and stripped away and now like the roots are it's not really holding the soil together the way it was, and now it's just mud. Yeah. And, uh, and if you've ever taken a poetry class, you, you may have run across the fact that, yeah, there's a lot of great but depressing poetry um, and, and writings in general that came out of this time period, people describing these conditions, describing the horrors of war, the horrors of chemical warfare and so forth. Um, one of the best literary treatments of war in mud, however, just has to be that of American-British war nurse turned novelist and poet Mary Borden. Uh, in 1917, she wrote a poem called The Song of the Mud. Uh, you can find this in full on poetryfoundation.org, uh, but uh, it's, it's, it's really, really good. Uh, Joe, were you familiar with this, this poem? I don't think so. Yeah, this one is a new one for me. I, I, this is not one that I remember covering in poetry classes, but she writes of, quote, the frothing, squirting, spurting liquid mud that gurgles along the roadbeds, unquote, as well as, quote, the thick elastic mud that is kneaded and pounded and squeezed under the hoofs of the horses. Though she also juxtaposes this with more natural-seeming aspects of mud, even like mud as something that can be beautiful from afar. Mm. I'm going to read the final stanza from the poem, but again, I encourage everyone to go out and read it in full. Quote, This is the song of the mud, 
the beautiful glistening golden mud that covers the hills like satin, the mysterious gleaming silvery mud that is spread like enamel over the valleys, mud the disguise of the war zone, mud the mantle of battles, mud the smooth fluid grave of our soldiers. This is the song of the mud. Wow, that's interesting. And uh, I don't know, the, the, the connotations of mud as used in that stanza at least are more... I don't know, more positive than I would have expected. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 a lot of dark imagery in there about it, like swallowing up guns and taking people down and like like not only like the physical power of the mud, but also like the emotional toll of the mud, uh, which I'll come back to in a bit as well. Uh, when I was thinking of World War One poetry uh, and the concept of mud, I thought of the uh, one of the poems of Wilfred Owen. I just had to look mm-hmm. it up because I didn't remember the name, but uh, it's the Apologia pro Poemate Mayo, which I, I think means uh, defense of my poetry. And uh, this is by Wilfred Owen, who was a British poet who fought in World War One, uh, wrote a lot of poetry associated with the war, like Anthem for Doomed Youth, you might have read. Uh, mm-hmm. But the opening stanza of this poem was i too saw god through mud the mud that cracked on cheeks when wretches smiled war brought more glory to their eyes than blood and gave their laughs more glee than shakes a child oh wow yeah i i I don't remember that that bit but i remember owen he's he's definitely one of the names that comes up when a poetry class steers sharply into the trenches yeah Now, a book that I mentioned earlier in this series, uh, Mud, A Military History by C.E. Wood, is a a full book dealing with mud and war. And so if you if you need more of this, I highly recommend you pick up that book. It's 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 very well written. It's a very, you know, it's it's very absorbable. But uh, in it, Wood stresses that while more permanent domains of mud are certainly important in warfare, you need to know where the swamps, marshes and bogs are and how to either circumnavigate them or utilize them, force the enemy to move through them, that sort of thing. Um, But the main area of interest in the book is transitional mud. Uh, That is, the kind that arrives and departs without significant warning. Uh, Okay, so this previously traversable landscape suddenly has mud in it that is going to interfere with your progress. Yeah, and this this becomes key because uh, I mean this is not something you can necessarily plan for, or planning can fall short of taking it into account. And it's uh, a variety of mud that has played a crucial role in the history of armed conflict. One of Wood's main focuses in this is how mud hinders forward advancement in warfare, so impacting combatants, animals, and machines of war. And of course, not just war machines and soldiers and tanks and horses with knights on them and that sort of thing. But of course, everything that supports a war uh, effort, that supports an army and its advancement, you know, the vehicles that are carrying um, uh, food, uh, any kind of um, medical support that is in tow, all of that sort of thing as well. So generals have to contend with the impact of permanent mud, seasonal mud, random transitional mud, in addition to all of the other threats and challenges of battle, all the other environmental uh, concerns that will come into play. Mm -hmm. And there are also huge human health and mental health challenges with mud um, that uh, that the author deals with um, in greater detail. There's a great quote in the book, though, about this attributed to, to historian Martin Gilbert. Quote, at night, crouching in a shell hole and filling it, the mud watches like an enormous octopus. The victim arrives. It throws its poisonous slobber out at him, blinds him, closes round him, buries him. For men die of mud as they die of bullets. 
but more horribly. Mud is where men sink and, what is worse, where their souls sink. Hell is not fire. That would not be the ultimate in suffering. Hell is mud. Wow. Well, there is something I think interesting there in that mud, in a way, militates against people's um, ability to see their own suffering as noble or to see it in any grandiose terms, that there's something kind of humbling and humiliating about suffering brought on by an environment of mud. And thus, like, death in mud is is a an image that brings a lot more despair than the idea of a sort of like violent death or death in fire. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, on uh, uh, thinking about this, though, hell is mud. Um, that, of course, made me think of, of Dante's Inferno. And I was like, I remember there being some mud in Dante's Inferno somewhere. You have varied uh, all the different circles and bulgas and in uh, Inferno. They have different um, characteristics, different flavors. And uh, indeed, uh, there is a, a circle in Dante's Inferno where there is mud. It is the third circle. And uh, I, had to, I had to look it back up again. I was looking in my, um, my translation by uh, Durling and Martinez. And uh, this is, uh, this is uh, just a, a couple of lines from it. Quote, I am in the third circle with the eternal, cursed, cold, and heavy rain. Its rule and quality never change. Great hailstones, filthy water, and snow pour down through the dark air, the earth stinks that received them. Mm. It's also the realm of Cerberus, but when, quote, the great worm opens his mouth to growl at Dante and Virgil, Virgil throws dirt into the monster's three mouths, and uh, the monster gobbles it all down. Mm. Delicious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, as, as Derling and Martinez explain in the notes, in my translation of Inferno, the mud... Uh, food connection is key here. Quote, the rain, hail, and snow and resulting mud are versions of the food and drink to which the gluttons were addicted. In the last analysis, merely visions of the elements, earth and water. Uh, sort of portraying the, like, the, the worthlessness of the pleasures of gluttony, that, like, uh, that you're just sort of concerning yourself with material rubbish rather than having your mind on heavenly things. Yeah, and also like the sense that it's it's all mud anyway, or yeah. even that it's all it's it's all excrement. Uh, there's also a lot of dog imagery here. Obviously, we have Cerberus with the three dog heads, and then we also have pig imagery thrown in, and also mud excrement comparisons as well. Hey, pig imagery br bringing us back yeah. to uh, pig mud wallowing, which actually turns out to be a uh, a quite clever adaptation of nature. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like feels like or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. 
Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. (laughs) And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics, in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Anyway, so brief, brief uh, departure into hell, but coming back to the surface world and the hell we make for ourselves there, uh, coming back to war. Um, as, as Wood explains, the, the mere challenge of moving around in mud can lead to exhaustion for the individual soldier. And, and this exhaustion can prove fatal. It can also hold true for pack animals as well. So, you know, if you're in a very muddy situation and you're having to just move through mud constantly or for a, a lengthy period of time, like that's just making every step so much harder. And there's a good chance you're already doing something exhausting that is mentally trying. You're already under, under a great deal of stress. And now each, each time you try and lift your, your boot, your foot out of the mud, more effort. Uh, is required of you. Mm-hmm. Now, there have been efforts to improve footwear for soldiers uh, in, at different time periods, uh, such as having wider, essentially kind of like plank bottom shoes. The, the U.S. Army experimented with special mud boots and shoes in World War II and then again in Vietnam. Uh, would include several prototype photos here. Joe, I included a, a screen cap here for you to look at these. Uh, they, they're not much to look at, but you can see they're like basically different designs of wide flat surfaces that would be strapped or somehow attached to the bottom mm-hmm. of boots. Some of them look like huge wooden hooves. Yeah, they do. And, you know, I'm, I'm not certain uh, because the it's just the, 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 the uh, subtitle here is very brief, but I guess it's possible that, that some of these could be for horses. I don't know. Like maybe the round one uh, that's kind of hoof shaped is for a horse. I don't know. Huh. Because certainly, um, you know, horses would be of concern and, well, not all of these military uh, engagements of some of them. Uh, tracked vehicles like tanks and half tracks 
uh, can perform better in some muddy situations, but a tracked vehicle certainly can get stuck in the mud. As Wood points out, they can also slide out of control through the mud and down muddy hillsides as well. Um, tracks can spread weight out more evenly than tires. Uh, so that's one of the appeals of having uh, like tracks or half-track designs in these vehicles. But yeah, they're still not perfect. And then if you throw trenches into the mix, um, as it was uh, encountered in the First World War especially, you know, that one of these uh, uh, big tanks can get stuck in the trench and therefore you need uh, like other vehicles to lay down temporary bridges so that the, uh, the tanks can make it across those trenches. Mm. Now, coming back to, to, to health, though, human health and mud, Wood also points out that extremely muddy conditions often lead to deteriorating sanitary conditions. Um, Wood points out that wounded soldiers rarely reach medical facilities clean. So, and then this makes sense, you're in muddy conditions. Uh, you're going to enter into the, um, the medical facilities muddy. And that in, also it means that in, oftentimes it's not just like any kind of pure mud. That mud is going to be mixed with all manner of unhygienic ingredients from the war zone. Muddy conditions also severely hinder the ability to just evacuate the wounded or to have medical personnel come in to deal with people who are wounded. Mm, yeah. Now, in addition to all these general concerns, it seems like I have memories of reading about uh, at least interpretations of some decisive battles in history where mud played a role in how the battle turned out, or at least some historians believed that it did. Like, I, I seem to recall the Battle of Agincourt as one example. Yeah, the Battle of Agincourt is, is a big one. Uh, this is from 1415, English victory over the French in the Hundred Years' War. The French had to advance heavily armored knights through very muddy conditions. And this, uh, and the key to this, too, is that this was transient mud, I've read. This was, these were not muddy conditions that were expected. This was, I believe, there was like a huge storm. Uh, so they weren't prepared for it. They marched anyway, and they end up sinking in the mud, especially if they've been knocked off their horse, uh, easily immobilized, once unhorsed in all that heavy armor. And it's said that, you know, some of the, uh, the French knights drowned in the mud there. And this seems to be kind of a pattern that emerges in history, like it is bad to be caught as the side in a battle that is trying to advance through the mud. Yeah, because, I mean, all these factors are going to come into play. It's going to slow you down. Um, this stuff's going to get stuck. And then when the battle turns against you, it's going to turn even worse. A couple of other examples that come up frequently, there's uh, the Mud March from the Battle of Fredericksburg, 1862 in the American Civil War. This was uh, uh, on the Union side, General Burnside's uh, troops were ended up, ended up having to, to go through some really muddy conditions and a number of key artillery pieces and wagons became trapped in the mud, delaying the Union advance. Mm. And this was due to like sudden stormy conditions that were not expected that, that made it difficult to move these key pieces. Now, the Battle of the Somme from 1916, uh, this was uh, this is another example that comes up. Now, this one, though, is an inconclusive battle of the First World War between German forces and uh, some British and French forces entailed massive casualties on both sides in very muddy trench warfare conditions. Um, so not a situation where like the mud gave either side an advantage, but just made it, you know, seemed to contribute it to, to it just being like an awful, um, awful battle for both sides. 
Now, as we mentioned already, like muddy conditions, uh, muddy trench warfare, it's like just kind of instantly picture it when you're thinking of World War I in particular, or perhaps like Germany's Eastern Front and World War II. And both of these are, are um, theaters of war that have been uh, recreated in various uh, films over the years and TV shows and the like. Uh, but also you just tend to see a lot of muddy um, war conditions and muddy battlefields and especially muddy conditions after the battle in other films and also in video games. And I'd never really thought of this uh, this before, but I was reading a little bit about this on the blog, the excellent blog, A Collection of Unmitigated Pedantry by historian Brett Devereaux. I've referred to, to this blog a few times because it's a, it's a great read. Um, he does things like uh, you know, analyze the uh, the warfare in the Lord of the Rings, both the the books and uh, the Peter Jackson movies, and and so forth. Uh, does a lot of talking about uh, about Roman military. So it's like a military historian uh, writing about topics nerds would be interested in. Yes, very much so. So if you're into a lot of these nerdy settings, or you're into ancient warfare and uh, medieval warfare and so forth, uh, I definitely recommend it. Uh, but I was reading one of his posts where he points out that. Um, that, yeah, you see a lot of films and especially video games that depict the aftermath of pre-modern battles as being just muddy and bloody messes. And he points out that this doesn't seem to be the norm. You mean in reality? In reality, yes. It was not always just a muddy mess after a ba- after an ancient or, or medieval battle took place. Right. Now, that's not to say that you don't have, like, the examples we were discussing, where you have definite muddy places that either erupt because there's a great, like, it's a road where there's a, lot, a great deal of travel, and then it becomes muddy, uh, and then you have transient mud in the mix. Uh, you have uh, uh, muddy conditions popping up because of extreme uh, storm um, um, activity that's taken place. Mm-hmm. But he points out that like, if you just have like a normal grassy environment, a field somewhere where there's a battle taking place, um, it's not like the, the a single battle taking place there over the course of a day or even a couple of days is going to just wear down all the vegetation and turn it into mud. In particular, he points to photographic evidence from the American Civil War that um, that shows that, yeah, you can have a large army, say, moving through an area, and it's not going to kill off the grass and muddy things up over the course of a single day or a couple of days. It's the sort of thing that occurs due to prolonged traffic, prolonged activity, and also environmental conditions thrown in there as well. So, you know, all of those things you see with like a trench warfare environment. But it's not just going to pop up over the course of a couple of days because an army moved through a place or even because two armies clashed at a particular location. Yeah. So maybe when when people are dug in and there's there's frequent foot traffic or heavy machinery moving around or when an area is subject to prolonged shelling or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I see the appeal of it in cinematic portrayals and dramatic portrayals of the aftermath of war because it's like we have been bloodied people are are suffering and wounded and it makes sense that that you sort of heighten that feeling that the earth itself the world is wounded by all of this like the wrongness of everything that has occurred here uh so like i i, I like that connection and i think i think it certainly plays well uh but it's it's you know a fun um uh, or an interesting um uh, commentary on this to sort of put it uh, in, you know, look at it within the perspective of how battles seem to have actually uh, impacted or not impacted the environment. 
So it's not necessarily the battle of a single day that can turn a place muddy, but it's more like the prolonged human presence, which may be why you can see places become very muddy if they're also like the site of a festival or fairgrounds. You ever notice how muddy that can get? Yeah, it gets very muddy very quickly. Um, you, you see this with um, with places that uh, even you know are, are more or less permanent. You know they, they're having to continually figure out how figuring out how the water flows and how to keep mud from becoming a problem. But yeah, it's it's um, you, you do see it at festivals a lot. I guess the what the '90s Woodstock oh, is a uh, yeah. is an example of uh, really muddy conditions and people getting into the mud and it also becoming sort of a hellscape uh, yeah. in that particular encounter. But there was also mud at the original Woodstock, and um, you know there, yeah. there's sort of these scenes of sort of um, innocent hippie enjoyment of muddy conditions, you know, slathering yourself with mud. Uh, so you know, being covered in mud and trapped in mud is not necessarily a bad thing. But certainly, you know, in if, if you're also engaging in a in a bloody battle, uh, I don't think anyone's going to be a fan. All right, we're looking at the clock here, and we realize we have to end mud part four. Uh, despite the fact that we we did want to get in a little bit, at least, into the discussion of mud and religion, um, one of the and one of the most obvious uh, aspects of this being that so many religions, uh, especially ancient religions and mythologies, involve some um, idea of humans being made from mud or clay or dirt, uh, but particularly uh, clay and mud. Uh, you know, very much leaning into the idea of a creator deity or deities as being uh, potters that are uh, that are molding us and perhaps baking us uh, and making us what we are. Uh, but then we had, we also had some other stuff to say about that. So, uh, well, I don't know. We'll have to come back to this in some form. I'm not saying we're going to come back and do mud part five because we already said we wouldn't do that. Um, <laughs> but we did leave the door open for various mud creatures to uh, slather in. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we'll discuss it off mic and come back. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close it out, but we'd love to hear from everyone out there. If you have thoughts on just mud in general, experiences with, with mud, experiences with muddy conditions, mud in military science fiction, uh, mud in military history, uh, in, in all of it's fair game right in. We would love to hear from you. A reminder that our core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind air on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We have uh, listener mail episodes on Monday, short form artifact or monster fact on Wednesday. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. Huge thanks to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. 
What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 